This is episode 538 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. You know, with every good thing, there is always a potential dark side or the possibility of collateral damage or unforeseen consequences that often come with it. I mean, the blessings of rain to a farmer with a parched field sometimes comes with a flood, and pain accompanies the joy of childbirth. Or as Newton's law of motion states, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And we can see this in just a few Supreme Court rulings this week, such as Kennedy versus the Bremerton School District regarding prayer, or Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Center regarding abortion, that look on the surface as something to rejoice about, and they are, but they also come with a sinister dark side. And what is that dark side, you ask? Simply this, our enemy is now enraged. That's right, Christians are being called the new Taliban by members of Congress, and the media is portraying us as bigoted insurrectionists who are the biggest threat to our democracy in the future of America. Yep, the enemy is you and me. And this is only the beginning. We have been encouraging you to become a faith prepper, to put your relationship with Jesus first in your life above all else, especially as we see the darkening clouds of persecution grow on the horizon. And these wonderful events this week may hasten that day. Are you ready? Are you prepared for what might happen to us as uncompromising believers? I hope so. But join us today as we talk more about what it means on a practical level to truly believe the Lord is coming soon and how to prepare to meet him in the air as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, two weeks ago, last week, of course, we were at Justice's house, uh, but two weeks ago, we talked about the book of Haggai, and we talked about what was going on in Haggai in the book, and made the point that uh, we need to be more of a uh, faith prepper. Faith prepper is a phrase that I actually coined trying to figure out a way to increase my faith to the point that I won't falter or I won't be embarrassed, or I won't let my flesh control me if things get bad. I see times in Scripture when, uh, and in, even in church history, when Christians are locked up and they're facing a tribunal or a trial the next day, and they spend that time prior to that praying and asking the Lord to, uh, to give them the faith so when they face current situations or rough situations, that they they won't embarrass the Lord. They won't capitulate. They won't do what their flesh wants them to do because our flesh is um, so self-preserving. We talked about the need for being a faith prepper. I think I've described it to you enough that you should know what it's all about. It's tied in with the higher Christian life, having a deeper intimacy with the Lord, which only comes when you absolutely put him first. And this week, there were some events that happened that I need to share with you that on the surface look wonderful, absolutely wonderful, until you play it all out and see how it ends up. You've heard of these. First one happens on June 23rd, and they were the Supreme Court rulings that came out as they were closing their session. Uh, happened on Thursday and happened on Friday. 
What happened on the 23rd was the court ruled in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus the superintendent of the New York State Police, where the draconian measures having to show cause to carry a concealed weapon by New York were thrown out. In other words, what happened was in New York, you had to actually show just cause to be able to have a concealed carry permit, and almost everybody was denied. You're allowed to protect yourself in your home, as Justice Thomas said, but it's ridiculous to think that you can't protect yourself outside. And if your reasoning was, I get out of work, I have to walk three blocks to my car, and I'm walking through a gang-infested ghetto, and I fear for my life, the answer was not good enough. And so that was thrown out. And of course, the news media went absolutely crazy. The governor of New York got all upset, but they just passed, thanks to some of our Republicans, they just passed a gun control measure, which basically gave funding to the states for red flag laws, which basically mean that if a a uh, governmental body can go to a judge without due process and convince a judge that you're some sort of threat that they can take your guns away and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so since this law was passed, the governor of New York in the last two days has signed a law basically saying, now if you want to have a concealed carry permit, you have to produce to us all your profile names on all social media so we can look at your post and we can see exactly what kind of person you are activating, of course, this red flag law. There's a good side to this, and there's also the bad side. On the 24th, we had a couple rulings that came out. One was Kennedy versus the Bremerton School District. If you remember this, 2015, there was a high school coach who just wanted to go out and, and uh, have a silent prayer at, uh, after a football game, and some of the other students kind of joined him. A few parents joined him. One person objected to that, and so therefore they told him he couldn't do it anymore. He refused. They fired him. It's been five, six years working his way through the court system. He doesn't want any monetary damages. All he wants is his job back, and they ruled in his favor. And now all of a sudden, the other side is rearing up, talking about the fact that we have Christian Taliban on the Supreme Court, and, and it's become rather a hot issue for the other side. We rejoice as Christians because it was a, a move for religious freedom, but there's always a dark side to every good thing that happens. The major case, which everybody celebrates, Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. What happened here, as you know, is Roe versus Wade, which codified women's rights to have an abortion on a federal level, was now disavowed, and now it goes down to the individual state levels. And so you've got some states that are saying no, and some states that are saying yes, and our nation's being fractured here, and um, we have... Biden wanting to open up abortion clinics on federal land right at the borders of states who say no, and it, this has gone crazy. We've got you know, people protesting in front of the Supreme Court Justice's house, and our attorney general refuses to act. Just yesterday, the Supreme Court, or the head of security of the Supreme Court, wrote the governors of the states and said, hey, we need some help because the federal government is not protecting uh, our justices here. This is a crime trying to 
change the view of a judge by intimidation. Uh, Garland does nothing. The Biden administration does nothing. So now state militia is getting involved. There's a downside to all of this. We have, um, we have threats being made to people who run crisis pregnancy centers. From, uh, remember Jane, from uh, uh, the Roe versus Wade uh, trial, which says, if, you know, if we're not safe, neither are you. The media barely picks up on it. Nothing gets done, and it's only getting worse. Then, of course, on June 30th, we had this ruling, which is West Virginia versus the EPA. And basically, the EPA and all these other three-letter organizations, the CIA, FBI, IRS, uh, DHS, whatever you want, CDC, um, all have uh, overstepped their authority. Uh, like the CDC literally shutting down our economy, forcing churches not to meet and people staying home and wear masks, that they don't have that authority. The EPA now has uh, become a real burden on small businesses. Uh, West Virginia sued them on their uh, carbon mandates and, of course, won. So now that devalues some of the power that these administrative fourth state kind of three-letter agencies have. And the dark state is just incensed at this. It's a victory. It's a victory for small business. It's a victory for Second Amendment people. It's a victory for those pro-life people. We should be celebrating these things, but there's a dark side to all of it. And the dark side is this. You are now being accused of Christian nationalism. Matter of fact, many pastors, many well-known pastors and denominational leaders are coming out with messages saying that to be a patriot to love our country and be a Christian are incompatible because it's becoming uh, very unpopular now to celebrate the 4th of July, to think America is a great nation or to fly a flag out in front of your house. And, and so now Christians are being coupled with the January 6th people who supposedly tried to... Uh, you know, usurp the government, and we have people lying on these trials. You, you've watched all this. You know what's going on. It's incredibly insane. It's, it shows exactly what the world is willing to do to gain back their country, to gain back their agenda, to put you and I under subservience to them. The move now comes against the church. It comes against people who are God-fearing, country-loving, good people, who believe in that uh, there's a male and a female and nothing in between. To think that marriage, I mean, you think that marriage should really be just between a male and a female? I mean, how crazy is that? I showed Karen a, uh, an article that uh, the largest Baptist, they call them unions in the UK, but they're like denominations in the UK, is basically uh, having to uh, call a synod together of 70 of their theologians and their pastors to study the issue and to come up with a position paper that says for the Baptist union, the largest Baptist union in, in uh, England, that basically says that when we make a statement that uh, intimacy between a man and a woman our intimacy between a man and a woman should only be in the confines of marriage, that the, we have to reevaluate not that it has to be in the confines of marriage, but whether it's limited to a man and a woman. 
That it could be a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or a man and whatever they self-identify with, or a woman and a dog, or it doesn't really matter. And they're actually, actually having to get together and decide what our position is when it's so clearly, clearly the antithesis of what the Scripture teaches. But nobody seems to care. We just keep rocking on with our life. We read these reports. And then when I preach upon them, Karen even told me, you didn't even know what I was going to preach on today. And Karen told me this week, she said, do you realize you're going to lose church members? Because people don't want to hear negative stuff. They want to hear happy stuff. They want to hear your best life now. They want to hear, you know, how God has cattle on a thousand hills. They want to hear all about living in this world. They want to hear things about how to have a happy marriage, your words, how to, you know, just be able to, you know, have a big retirement income and be able to do the things that we want to do. But we're not living in those times anymore. We're not. And I, I feel impressed. I feel like, and again, I have no special knowledge. Everything I'm sharing with you is out there. If you just take the time to read it and look at it and see some things, I, I feel like I'm, I've just been to the deck of the Titanic and I've just talked to the guys that are discussing this iceberg out there, and I've come back down into where everybody's dancing and partying and listening to the dance band, and I'm saying, hey, these guys up there who know more than we do are pointing to the fact there's an iceberg out there you need to prepare, and nobody wants to hear it because we're too busy having a good time making our livings and raising our kids and you know, building our homes and, and all this stuff that's not bad in and of itself. But we're in Nazi Germany, not in 1934-35. We're in Nazi Germany in 1939. And I'm not just the only one who believes this. I received this email today, this morning, from Hal Lindsey, um, still speaking truth, and 90 plus years of age. Here's what he says. Forces from within are weakening the United States even as the world economy falters. True? Yeah. Inflation is rising almost everywhere. True? Absolutely. The nations who once stood for human rights and dignity grow more and more willing to suppress rights in exchange for the promise of peace and safety. People are afraid. More every day, these look like the times described in the Bible as happening just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. In biblical terms, the seven years preceding Christ's return are known as Daniel's 70th week. But most Christians refer to these years as simply the tribulation. The Bible teaches that several things must happen before the tribulation begins. They include the rapture of the church, followed by the Antichrist rise to prominence. You need to understand, the tribulation begins when the Antichrist confirms a seven-year treaty with Israel. The rapture of the church takes place, and according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we're going to look at it in a second, the Antichrist is then revealed. And so the Antichrist has to be revealed, moved to some sort of elevated area of prominence, so much so that he's able to guarantee the safety of Israel against their enemies and sign this peace treaty. Who knows how much time that takes for that to happen? Month? Six months? Year? Several years? 
So when the rapture takes place, that's not the beginning of the tribulation period. That's the beginning of the Antichrist rising to prominence. The tribulation begins at some time when he, he confirms that peace treaty. He says, we know a great deal about what will happen in the tribulation and what the world will look like in those days. Even though we are not in the tribulation, we see the world looking more and more like it will during that time. From here, it can happen with exceeding speed. The tribulation will be a time of judgment upon the earth. These judgments will begin with the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse from Revelation 6. And it says, And I look and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. We spent weeks going through this, if you remember. That first horseman will be the Antichrist presenting himself as the false messiah to the world. He will conquer by bringing the world into a single monetary system headed by himself. Why do you think every country today is on a fiat currency? The verse mentions a bow, but no arrows. He will conquer without firing a shot. When a desperate world seeks his seemingly miraculous Middle East peace treaty, it will be as if he pulled the sword from the stone and they will quickly give him their kingdoms, but not all of them. The desperation we see now is a prelude to the extreme desperation that will enable him to conquer the world with amazing ease. But the era of peace, safety, and international cooperation will be brief. The underlying antagonism will remain. For instance, Iran, Russia, and Turkey still hate Israel. The arrival of the second horseman marks the removal of peace from the earth, and it means war. Next comes the black horse, destroying lives and economies with hyperinflation. Then arrives the pale horse, leaving death in its wake. These are just the beginning of the tribulation's judgment. Here's how he ends. The hurricane has not arrived, but the wind has picked up and is beginning, it's beginning to rain. The barometric pressure is dropping, and in the distance we see dark, threatening skies. It is a good time to draw close to the Lord and his word and to spread that word everywhere. We stand remarkably close to the accumulation of the age and the beginning of something glorious. We stand remarkably close to the end of this age and the beginning of something glorious. Heaven is glorious. The return of Christ is glorious. We should live for the fact that we want to spend our life with him because it's glorious. But most Christians, including myself, are so intertwined with this world, become friends of this world, become citizens of this world, even though the scripture says it's not our home, that the last thing we want is Christ to come and mess everything up that we're trying to do. And it's a totally faulty view, an earthly view of what he wants. So here was my message. I'm going to the very end of this. We're now in Malachi 14, last verse. The question I ended was, do we need to make any changes in, it, in our life? Looking at Haggai chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 1. And uh, I was going to give you an example, which I am now. Question is, what do you truly believe? On January 31st, 2021, I preached this message. I, um, I basically said that we as people, we as a congregation, need to come up with 
understand what our, our personal mission statement is. What are the things that we believe? What are our sincerely held convictions? What are we willing to die for if necessary? And then we focus our life through that grid. You know, uh, you can't really hit a target unless you know where you're shooting at. And so the idea was on January 31st, 18 months ago, January 31st, we asked the question, what am I willing to die for? What is the mission and calling of my life? Is it just to make money? Is it just to raise a family? Is it to work really hard and retire early? Is it to build a business? Is it to take vacations and have fun? What is the mission and calling of my life? Is it in this world or in his kingdom? What means the most to me? Myself, pride, arrogance, money, freedom, time. What means the most to me? And what truth am I not willing to compromise on? What am I willing to die for? And every one of us on January 31st, 2021, were asked to go home and make this determination for yourself. I shared with you mine. I shared with you what I believed, this is from that PowerPoint, what I believed in January 31st, 2021 was coming in the future. And therefore, my life has been aligned through that grid, seeing that this is what I believed. Here they were. This is exactly the order I shared them with. I believe we're entering the end times. And so therefore, everything changes. You begin to have an eternal view of something rather than just a temporal view of something. And if we're beginning to enter the end times, I believe what would we see happening in this world? This was from January 31st, 2021. I said, I believe things will get very bad in the U.S. over the next two years or more. We're now 18 months into that. Well, how bad? Well, what what did I expect to see? I believed inflation is a certainty. I believe there will be shortages of food and gas, etc. You remember this? this? I'm no prophet. It's just written. I mean, just if you have any understanding of economics, it's really simple to see what direction we're heading. It's not that hard. I believe we will face persecution as Christians. And that all of a sudden is beginning to raise its ugly head. I believe there will be great possibility for civil war. I shared Karen an article yesterday. Um, Politico did a survey of a thousand potential voters, and in the questions they asked them, they asked them that, do you believe an armed conflict is coming into America? And if so, would you participate in it? Thousand random people, 25% or 40% of them said, yes, I do believe an armed conflict is coming to America. 25% of them, one in four people said last week, I will join it. That's scary. That's scary talk. Because there's probably a lot of people who felt that way that weren't about to say that because you never know where Big Brother's at. And I believe we must prepare spiritually right now. That's what I've been trying to do in my life. That's what I've been trying to do with you. That's why we harp on faith preparation and, and stuff of that nature to prepare our hearts spiritually to have the kind of faith that we believe, if needed, Jesus could still multiply loaves and fishes. These are the times in which we live right now. So the only one I'm going to ask you about is this one. 
Do you believe we're living in the end times? And if so, what does that mean? Are we living in the end times? If you'll turn to 2 Thessalonians, I'm just going to show you a passage here and a passage in 2 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the times in which we live. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What's happening here is uh, Paul has left. He's told them about the coming of the Lord. He's told them about what to look forward to and this great appearing of him, uh, of the Lord. Some people had died in their congregation. And so the question was, since they had died, had they missed the coming of the Lord, what's going to happen to them? They received some sort of prophetic message or a letter or a sermon or something of that nature saying that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul was writing them back, assuring them it hadn't, because before it happens, there's certain things that must take place. And since these things had not taken place, the day of the Lord had not come. Here's what he says. Verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord, this is the second coming, it's Perusa, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him, this is, of course, harpazo, this is the rapture. So concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord, the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless, and he lists some things that have to take place. Number one, the apostasy happens first. The falling away comes first. Christians no longer hold on to biblical Christianity. People no longer listen to finite truth. Instead, they gather around themselves people that will tell them what they want to hear. They become masters of their own fate. They become the ones that decide what is right and wrong. Narcissism raises its ugly head. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, which is what we're right in the middle of now. And the man of sin is revealed as son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What I just described to you is the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel. It's at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and that is when God himself unleashes his wrath. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Okay, so why isn't it happening now? Why isn't the Antichrist raising his head now? What is keeping him from doing that? And now, verse 6, you know what is restraining, that he, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness, this spirit of lawlessness, this spirit of deception and of selfishness and brutality where the love of many grows cold is already at work. Only he, capital H, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The thing that is holding back the Antichrist and the power of Satan to have full reign on this earth is the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit live? In you. 
And so when you're taken out of the way, then all of a sudden Satan has his full reign. And then, after that takes place, after the rapture, the lawless son will be revealed. And it may take some time for him to come to noteworthiness to be able to command the power that uh, he can make a peace treaty with all the world guaranteeing Israel's safety. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. That's at the Battle of Armageddon. The coming of the lawless one is according with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. You see that during the book of Revelation. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So what happens to those people who were still on the earth when it takes place? And for this reason, because they rejected the truth, God, his action. Just like in Haggai chapter 1, where he says, I sent the drought. I'm the one that caused this to happen. I'm the one that's making everything that you do not prosper, because I want you to turn back to me. God now says that he will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I do not know what the lie is, but I do know that the setting of that lie is so rampant in our culture right now that it is shocking. The psychological term for it is narcissism. I know many of you have not dealt with that on a one-on-one basis, but it is so rampant in our society right now, social media pushes it a lot, that you cannot convince a narcissist of anything. A narcissist believes that they're right and everybody else is wrong, that they're to be served and they will serve no one. They are ruthless, they are deceptive, they are horrific people, and the psychological society say there's no cure. The only thing you can do if you're in a relationship with a narcissist is run, which is the hardest thing to do because what a narcissist does is grooms you to the point that you're so dependent and addicted to them that you can't run because there's some sort of tearing that takes place inside of you. Cannot convince a narcissist of the truth no matter what the facts are because they have been sent or they're preconditioned to believe whatever the lie is, even though the evidence right in front of them is the rapture took place because Christ must be real and the Bible prophecies are true, but instead they choose to believe something totally separate. I do a lot of counseling, and uh, I cannot tell you in the last 10 to 12 years, almost every counseling session I have It's because somebody is either a full-blown malignant narcissist or a covert or overt narcissist or they have narcissistic tendencies moving in that direction. We feed it. We feed it on to our children. I mean, my grandchildren love to watch people on YouTube. There's no content to what's going on. They love to watch people on YouTube do reactions. So there's this girl that's really popular, and she's sitting here looking in the camera, you know, all made up and everything, and so she sees something. Oh, it's a music she hadn't heard before, and she makes reactions. And they're just enthralled with that because it's all about how somebody else is, and they do that, or they watch people playing video games. I'm watching somebody else live life, 
because I don't care about stories. I don't care about you know, content or anything like that. It's just, it's insane what's happening. On Facebook, which I suggest you guys dump like I did, I told Karen, since I totally deleted my Facebook account well over a year ago, it's been the happiest year of my life, can't tell you the number of hours that you get back because of that. I mean, everybody posts, oh, here's what, do you want to know what I'm eating today? I'm eating this. Oh, like, 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 yeah, you know, because my self-worth is tied up in the meal I'm eating. Really? It's amazing what's happening out there. So let's be practical about this. Um, if we believe we're living in the end times, then it's very possible that the rapture could take place at any time God chooses. Would you agree? Matter of fact, there's nothing that needs to be done for the rapture to take place. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen down the road a bit. We really don't know. But the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church. And if the rapture takes place and you're a parent or you're a grandparent, what about your children? Oh, oh, well, all my children will go into rapture because, um, because they haven't reached the age of accountability. Remember us talking about that? The age of accountability. What in the world is the age of accountability? Well, it's a doctrine that we made up to help us sleep better, thinking our kids, you know, will, something will happen to them, you know, if, if, if we're gone and they're not, or they die when they're young, like when they're 10, you know, or something of that nature. So we've invented this age of accountability. And what exactly does that entail? Oh, it means that God does not hold them accountable for their sins until they reach a certain age. Well, what age is that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, 12. The answer is 12. But why is the answer 12? Because that's how old Jesus was when he went into the temple. And so it's 12. And plus, Jesus said, suffer the little children, come unto me. So therefore, all the little children under the age of 12 are definitely going to go to heaven um, no matter what they do, because God doesn't hold them accountable to the doctrine of original sin or anything like that until they reach the age of 12. Well, is that a mental age or is that a um, physical age? I mean, what about somebody who never mentally reaches the age of 12 and they're 35 years old? Oh, no, no. So yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like a, it's it, 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 just on a sliding scale. I mean, for some people it's 12 and maybe for other people it's not. Well, who determines? I guess you do. I guess I do. Whatever helps us sleep better at night. So, so a kid only knows right and wrong when they reach the age of 12. Well, 12's a little much. Let's, let's bring it down. All right, eight, six. You pick the number. We're making this up as we go because we think salvation is all based on us rather than the sovereign choice of God. So, um, Micah, how old are you? Stand up for a second. Do you think this boy knows the difference between right and wrong? Yeah. Do you know why they call them terrible twos? Yes, they know the difference between right and wrong. And they don't want to follow what's right. I mean, come on, think it through logically. Think it through logically. Now, I believe that young ones will go to the Lord because I believe in his grace and mercy not because I have to invent some sort of doctrine. But nevertheless, think this. Here's the sobering part. Let's take, um, um, let, uh, well, I'll use Lindsay as an example. Lindsay ra was raised in a preacher's home, 
And when she was, I don't know, six or seven years old with the rest of the kids, she believed in Jesus and she got baptized. And I remember that day and and everything was kind of rocking on. And it, it wasn't until we were at West Franklin, she was 12 years old. I preached a sermon on hell. And I remember when it was over, I was in my office and she came in and she closed the door behind me and she was crying. And she says, I'm not saved. And I said, I know, I know. And we prayed and her life was changed. Now, I did everything I knew to do as a parent and, you know, made a profession and baptized and all that kind of stuff. But faith didn't come to her until she was 11 or 12 years old. So we assume with our own children that, um, oh, they're fine. Somebody else is going to take care of them. And, you know, and then we'll, we'll, we'll send them to kids club and it's Karen's job to share Jesus with them. And I don't have time for devotions and my kids have never seen me pray. And, you know, my wife and I, the last thing we do is have kind of a spiritual time with them. And so, you know, it's going to be okay because I don't have to worry about it until they reach the age of 12 and move beyond the age of accountability per se. Well, think what would happen if the rapture took place today. And let's assume, using Lindsay as an example, let's assume that one of her children, or two of her children, truly aren't saved. So, the older ones. And so, the rapture takes place, the church is gone. Who would raise your kids, Lindsay? Lost people. The saved people are gone. The only people that will take care of your children, maybe your older children, are people who have been sent this strong delusion to believe the lie that the Antichrist is the Messiah. And because we don't think that we're living in these end times, we don't even bother many times as parents to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The Old Testament said that we're to talk about the Lord to our children when we're walking or when we rise up in the morning, when we're walking, when we go to bed at night, all the time. Our number one thing as a parent is to be able to tell them about Jesus and let them see the vibrant faith that we have in us, not build some business out there or pay our house off or or all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's good, but not to the extent that our kids, our children, suffer. If we believe that Jesus is coming soon, it kind of changes the way, it should change the way we review everything. One last verse, and I'll quit. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is Paul's last letter to his son, Timothy pastoring the church at Ephesus at that time, wanting to give him these words that will spur him on after Paul is gone. And here's what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not be strong in your own strength or anything else, but be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so what am I supposed to do with my life? It's really simple. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. In other words, it's about discipleship. He didn't say anything here about funding a 401k or voting for a particular particular party or loving a football team or anything like that. He said that you strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and disciple others. 
And what can I expect when I disciple others? Hardship, tough times, persecution, because it's exactly what Jesus said. Verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ, a good soldier for him. So what makes me a good soldier? It's really simple. The next verse. No one engaged in warfare as a good soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about the higher Christian life. And if you remember, the way to embrace the higher Christian life is to forsake the life that you live now, to surrender your life to him. Some of us have lives that have been blessed immensely by God in this earth. We surrender that to him. Some people have lives that have been really tough uh, on this earth. We surrender those to him. The breath that we breathe belongs to him. My desire is like our desire, like Christ's desire, is to please the Father. So we surrender our life to him. We believe his promises are true, such as be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your wishes known unto God and and your entreaties unto him, and, and he will take care of the rest by giving you this peace and, 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 tr- and acknowledge him in all things and not lean on your own understanding, and he'll show you exactly what you need to do. But not to be so intertwined with this world, entangled with this world, that we're no longer a soldier. So my, my ministry is not to make a lot of money. I don't see that anywhere. Matter of fact, what I do see is the love of that is the seed of all evil. So my, um, my ministry should not be to raise a bunch of kids? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good thing. And, and we're supposed to be good parents, but our life is not tied up in those children because those children someday will leave and, and form their own families. And we want our kids to do better spiritually than we are. I heard Vody Bauckham say this one day, and I'll never forget it, that his goal as a father is as a man first to run as far as he can with the sword of Christ, proclaiming God's goodness until he dies, and then have his sons step over him as a stepping stone to carry it even further to build his kingdom. Something like that begins when your kids are young, with devotion times, with making church and God and prayer paramount with limiting the media that we let our kids look at that we look at by not becoming a friend of this world but becoming a a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. There's so much involved in that if you simply believe we're entering the end times. I've had to... um, I've had to reevaluate a lot of things in my own life. Um, some of the things I enjoy doing, some of the things I don't enjoy doing and I should be doing, some of the ways I spend my time and my money, the attitudes that I have towards people or institutions, the flippancy of some of the words that come out of my mouth. And when we realize in 2000, December 31st, 2021, when I publicly told you this is, what I, this is what I believe is going to happen to the world in which I live, and of those things, 
of the six things I shared with you, four of them have already taken place and are only getting worse. It's like, all right, if you believe it, act like it. Quit holding on to everything so tight. Quit, quit trying to make it all about you. Quit trying, to, quit trying to live as if the adulation from this world, the acceptance from this world, something Christ never got, is more important than serving me. And I've had a kind of a renewal in my heart about uh, what life truly is all about. It's not about stuff. It's not about fame and fortune. It's not about size of houses or cars. It's not about anything that our culture says is important. It's not about the number of friends you have on Facebook. It's not about the number of political posts that you post on Gab, talking about how stupid the administration is. It's not about the number of books you read or write. Or, or It's not about any of those kind of things. It's being able to to let others see Christ in me stronger than he's ever been before. It's about being a 10, being closer to the Lord today than I have ever been in my entire life until tomorrow when I'm closer to him tomorrow than I am today. To have a life that is so captivating, so contagious, so appealing, and so addicting to a lost world that they say, I want what you have. For my children to feel that way, for my grandchildren to feel that way, for my brother, extended family members to feel that way. It's not about us and them. It's about us and him doing what he wants to do through us to them. And then all of life changes. In a couple weeks, we're going to uh, have a, maybe on a Thursday night, kind of have a roundtable discussion for those parents in here and those grandparents in here that have children who are lost and you feel like that you don't know how in the world to share the gospel with them. Maybe I've already blown it. Maybe I was a really terrible mom or dad, and now my kids won't have anything to do with me. Or maybe, maybe my grandkids think they are saved, and I know they're not. And how do I broach that conversation? How do I, how do I put first things first? We'll talk about that and come up with some ways and see how we can be about making disciples of all nations, beginning with our own family first. Our own family first seeing if there's a way to stem this tsunami of narcissism that if you're not careful will infect every single one of you too. Where we're number one. How does the love of many grow cold? That you don't even care about your own children and your own wife or husband or family. I mean, how does that happen? That's a mental disease, a, a demonic attack that they've coined the phrase narcissism for and it is everywhere everywhere. If you feel lonely, if you feel sad, if you feel like you want someone else to know how bad you hurt, so you make a post on Facebook that says, oh, life's really terrible right now. Here's a picture of me with a frown on my face. So the people you don't even know will go, hey, it's okay. You know, hanging tight there, you know, just keep looking up and to somehow affirm you, you're heading in that direction. Or if I'm, if I'm feeling bad, so I find this particular angle in my bathroom 
with a camera so I can take a picture of me so the people I don't even really know will say, oh, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful. Wow, that looks great. You're getting your affirmation from the world, from people who don't even know you, versus pleasing God. And all of us fall prey to that. I mean, we all do. We all want people to like us, even to the point that we won't tell Jesus, tell them about Jesus, because we crave their affection so much. We're moving in that direction as a culture. Our kids are so far, and our grandkids are so far down that social media rabbit trail that I don't even know how to turn that around. I mean, we give phones with access, and I did it, you know, I'd probably do it now if I was a parent, with access to the internet to a nine-year-old and say, well, just you can call me if things are kind of bad. Well, what? Who does that? Well, that's just what everybody does. And if a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old doesn't have a phone, then what, are you living in the dark ages, mom? You don't love me, mom? I mean, it's, it's a weird world out there, is it not? Let me encourage you. Think about what we talked about today. Go home and reprioritize your life. Go home and put him first. And anything that doesn't build his kingdom, dump, get rid of. Because our job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness imputed to us. And then it's God's responsibility to take care of everything else. Because as I told you in January 21st, or 31st, 2021, we're running out of time. 18 months, 17 months have passed. And the time is even closer now. You can see from just what I shared with you that what's, what's happening. The next thing is Christian persecution. And again, unless you have your ear to the rail, you're not going to know about it. But it's happening worldwide. It's happening in our country and it could happen to you. And we need to have the kind of faith to stand firm during dark times. Amen? Let me pray.